Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Matthew writes, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In Matthew chapter 3, we're introduced to what John preaches. It's a simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in verses 1 through 4. We're introduced to whom John preaches. The people of Israel. Remember in verse 5, the people from Judea and Jerusalem came from all about. And many accept the message. Many repent of their sin. Many are baptized in verse 6. Included in the audience are the religious leaders of Israel. In verses 7 through 10, John will give a vivid description of the the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 7. And then warns them to truly repent and do good works or be destroyed in verses 8 through 10. The narrative moves from what John preaches in verses 1 through 4 to whom John preaches in verses 5 through 10 and then for whom John preaches. He's doing this for the Messiah. He's doing this for the King. John is preparing the way for the coming Messiah in verses 11 through 12. And this becomes maybe the very first important thing that I need to draw to your attention. That all Bible teaching, all effective preaching that excludes Jesus can't be called effective preaching. All preaching must point people to Jesus. To the Jesus of the New Testament. John understands that, recognizes that, and embraces that. In this narrative, we've already seen the need for repentance, the change of mind, the change of heart, the change of conduct, the forsaking of sin, and not simple sorrow, but a radical about face. Remember, John is preaching to a group of religious people. Not just the scribes and the Pharisees, but remember the people who've come from Judea and Jerusalem. These are people who pray every day. These are people who go to the temple. These are people who go to the synagogue. These are people who give alms to the poor. These are people who read their Bible in the original language. 
It isn't just people like you might think out there. These are religious people. And so John speaks of the proof of sincerity of baptism and confession in verse 6. A dramatical, visible evidence of change in verse 8. Bear fruit. Verse 10, good fruit. The powerful, radical, prophetic message has drawn the attention of the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. John's diet may consist of locust and wild honey, but if you get close to him, his breath doesn't smell like granola. There's fire coming out of his mouth. And according to Josephus, who writes some 60 years after the event, not just hundreds of people are showing up, not just thousands of people are showing up, but tens of thousands of people. This last trip to Israel, our guide talked about at the base of Masada, which is in the wilderness of Judea. Tens of thousands of young people are coming out for what they call an Israeli rave. And and Connie, why don't you put that up? I want them to see the picture of tens of thousands of people in the Judean wilderness. And hopefully she'll get that up in just a moment. But I want you to get a sense of the size of the crowd. If in your mind you see a man who's dressed up crazy standing by a river... Speaking to a couple of hundred people, you're not getting the right picture. And I guess we're not getting the right picture either. (laughs) But let's go to verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Out of these tens of thousands of people, you can see the images of the the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And think about his message just for a moment. Brood of vipers. Does this message sound appealing? Inviting, imagine you show up to an outdoor event and the pastor or the preacher from the pulpit points his finger right at you and says, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You might be wondering, you know, this doesn't seem to fit into the contemporary um, uh, homiletical mode in which most churches try to appeal to people's felt needs and difficult circumstances. John says, you're a brood of vipers. Why does he say that? Why does he talk to them that way? Because John knew. He knew that their motives were insincere. You see, there are pastors and preachers who may think that they know your heart or they may think that they know your motives, but the truth is they don't. Most people don't have access to other people's hearts. 
But God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave John access to the religious leaders' hearts. Who are these people? Who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Why are they there? And remember that the Pharisees were a group of men who professed great love and devotion to God, devotion to the law. If you were to ask them, they would characterize their life as a picture of wanting to honor God and wanting to serve God and wanting to obey God and wanting to listen carefully to the revelation of God. But the New Testament paints a picture of a group of people who are hypocritical and corrupt and self-righteous. And the Bible paints a picture of the Sadducees as a part, if you will, of the aristocracies, a heretical priesthood. You couldn't become a Sadducee or a priest unless you were born into the right family and you had the right credentials and the right genealogy. They were, in fact, what we might think of as religious liberals. They denied the supernatural. They were skeptics who denied the basic doctrines of the resurrection of the dead or the physical body. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 23, later Matthew will say, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. And you know the story. They proceeded to give a story about a man who is married, excuse me, a woman who is married to a man, the man dies, then his brother dies, and another brother dies, and another brother dies, and another brother dies, and they give this story mocking the resurrection, even mocking Jesus. And they laugh in his face, and they ask the question, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, you do err, not understanding the word of God or the Bible, if you will, and the power thereof. In the book of Acts, Paul is dragged before the Sanhedrin to answer charges of violating the temple. He confesses to be a, par- a Pharisee. He believes in the hope of the resurrection in Acts chapter 23, verse 6. And in verses 7 and 8, it says, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, it says, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, there is no spirit, there is no There are no angels. And so again, if you're thinking about the Sadducees as being a group of people who believe the Bible like you or who believe in the same kind of God that you believe in or who believe even in an afterlife, you can imagine that if you are a person and you are religiously liberal and you think that the Bible is interesting and the stories are fascinating, but according to to a survey that I read just last week in one particular liberal denomination, 10% of their so-called priests don't even believe that there's a God. You have to wonder. You go, what kind of an idiot goes into the ministry who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't believe in hope, doesn't even believe that there is such a thing as forgiveness of sin? You want to know why? Because they don't even really believe that there is such a thing as sin. And now you begin to understand at least a little something. 
if the Sadducees reject the existence of angels or the immortality of the soul, does it stand to reason that they believe that you'll stand before God in a real judgment? They don't believe that even for a minute. And so they reject the notion of eternal punishment. But remember, remember, God's prophetic voice has remained silent for 400 years and tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are coming out to hear John the Baptist. And what's even more amazing is tens of thousands of people are believing the message. They're convicted of their sin radical religious Jews are coming to a place of humiliation and self-examination as they begin to understand the message. The Pharisees, the Sadducees are religious authorities and so they're tasked with propriety and orthodoxy. Frederick Bruner calls them serious and dedicated. The separatists, these are the, the Pharisees. The sophisticated Sadducees. Bruner writes, quote, These two groups were the laymen united for biblical confession and their bitter enemies, the clergy united for a relevant ministry. These two groups, each believing itself, the bearer of God's saving will in history, were, John now forewarns us, God's major opponents. Legalism and liberalism at war with the message of God, with the message of grace. And by the way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees will both play a religious role and a political role in the life of the people. And we're going to find out more about them as we go through the gospel of Matthew. But the thing that I think I want you to remember at this point is that these are religious people. These are religious people who identify themselves as religious people. And so there's two kinds of religious people. The religious people who hear a message and believe that the message applies to them. And then there are those who believe that the message does not apply to them. After all, they're religious people. And so when John... Says brood of vipers. How many of you think that's a compliment? Oh, wow, I don't see a single hand. I guess there's one herpetologist there in the back. Okay. Loving the reptiles, staying loyal to them. But that's part of the point. You may not know this, but in the ancient world, the ancient people believed that the way that Snakes gave birth to their young. We know that reptiles lay eggs, but many in the ancient world believed that the young literally ate through the belly of their mothers. And it, when snakes reproduce, the female kills the male. And then the children, in order to be born, have to kill their own mother. And so when John is saying that you are the offspring of vipers, there's really only one thing worse than being a viper. And that's to be the offspring of vipers. The children of snakes. 
when he says, who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The implication being, why are you here? What is it that you believe? What is it that you want? Why have you come? Were they coming to be baptized? Did they entertain the notion that the message just might, just might, just might be true? Did they think that the waters of baptism would quench the fires of hell that was burning inside of their heart? Did they really think that a religious ritual would undo God's judgment against unrepentant sin? If repentance is insincere, if the change of mind is insincere, if the change of heart is not sincere, if the message is not believed, all the religion in the world won't save you. And maybe some of you grew up in a religious world, and maybe some of you grew up with no religion whatsoever. But the kingdom of God isn't just the rule of God, it's the wrath of God. And when the Bible speaks of the return of the Messiah, it's including the idea of a burning desire for justice. Remember, with the Messiah, with the king, and with the kingdom comes justice in the kingdom. And here on the earth, there are persecutors who in every age, in every generation, they will wind up, by the way, killing the apostles. And in the next generation, there will be a series of persecutors that will take place, 10 persecutions over the next 200 years that will result in children being killed, in, in people being beheaded, in churches being burned. Oh, by the way, are Christians being killed now and are children being killed now and are Christians being beheaded now? Are Christians being imprisoned now? That is the right answer. But they may kill our brothers and sisters and they may burn our churches and they may behead our children, but they can't scorch our hearts because the fire, the fire, the fire that will consume the future, the fire that will consume the future is the justice of our God. One person wrote, a coming of the kingdom without judgment for evildoers does not exist except in the imagination of the sentimental. Imagine there are a group of people who believe that God will come back and Jesus will come back. And Jesus will, of course, greet the righteous. But what will he do with the unrighteous? Bible teachers who ignore the judgment passages do their congregations a profound disservice and run the risk of misrepresenting God. John preaches repentance, which is going to lead either to life or to judgment. And he's not looking for a religious response. You know, one of the cardinal rules of preaching is never use yourself as an illustration. I'm going to break that rule this morning. In the seventh grade, leading a life of rebellion and disobedience and quite literally much detached from God and everything religious, my friend and I got picked up in the seventh grade for shoplifting. 
We were shoplifting in a store. We got caught. They called the sheriff. The sheriff came, took us to the sheriff's office, put us in a cell, and called our parents. And I had a come to Jesus moment. Well, things are not looking really good here. My life of rebellion and disobedience has landed me in this difficult spot. Oh, how I wish I hadn't done that. Oh, how I wish I had been a better person. Oh, how I wish I'd made different decisions. And Mr. Geraci began to cry a river of crocodile tears. And when mom and dad show up, I'm telling them with every ounce of sincerity that I can muster how sorry I am. And will you please take me to church and will you please take me to the priest where I can light a candle and make a good confession? Because after all, if I do something religious at this point, that maybe things will go in a different direction. And one of the reasons why that is what I wanted to do is because I thought that if I would turn over a different leaf or if I would go in a different direction, that maybe my life would be different. But I wasn't interested in repenting of my sin and I wasn't interested in turning to Christ because that was evidenced by how I lived my life the weeks that followed and the months that followed and the years that followed. God's wrath doesn't contradict God's love, but proves God's love. Because I want you to think about it for just a moment. What kind of God pampers sin? What kind of God ignores rebellion? What kind of God calls hate love or love hate? What kind of God says evil is really good? Love that pampers sin isn't love. And over the years, I've baptized many, many, many people, including some of you. And on more than one occasion, I've thought to myself, what are you doing here? What brings you to this place of of submission and repentance have you really changed? Have you, have, are you going in a different direction? Do you really love the Lord? John is in effect asking his audience when they were ever aware that there's something wrong, that there's something broken. Are you aware of your spiritual pride and hypocrisy and lost condition? Do you know and feel that your sins are wrong? Are you willing to trust the Lord Jesus and change? And since when do you fear the wrath or the judgment of God? Or are you just here to check me out? In John's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 29, we have John the Baptist seeing Jesus coming towards him, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John chapter 1, verse 33, John the Baptist says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 1, verse 34, it says, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And John's message is Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God. We can sum up his message in three words repentance, surrender, trust. And of course, repentance isn't reformation. 
It isn't simply turning over a new leaf. It isn't simply promising to go in a different direction. It isn't simply remorse. It isn't simply the act of regretting the fruit of one's crime like I did and refusing to ignore the root of one's crime. I've done some horrible things in my life. Sinful things. Terrible things. But according to the Bible, my worst, my most grievous sin was unbelief. It was unbelief. It was refusing to hear the message of hope. It was refusing to believe what the Bible said about Jesus. It was refusing to come to grips with the claims of Christ for my life. It was uh, Dr. Harold Wilmington. He wrote, God isn't primarily interested in convicting a sinner to give up smoking or give up swearing or give up drinking or give up illicit sex. As base as these may be, for this will never save him. His great sin will eventually condemn him forever. And that is the rejection of Jesus Christ. Repentance, therefore, deals with a turning from the horrible crime of spurning Calvary. And so John the Baptist calls forth evidence of a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of will. And he calls this, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In verse 8, look what it says. Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. And you might be thinking that fruit here means a change of life or a change of heart or a change of direction or being more generous or being more prayerful. And by the way, can you be an unbeliever and help someone in need? Of course you can. Is it possible that you could be a make-believer and pray till the tears have literally drained the lacrimal glands in your head But you don't believe in God and you don't trust God. Is it possible for the unbeliever to pray, give to the poor, open up their Bible and read it? I'm going to suggest to you that fruit or fruits is what the Bible uses to describe this living organic connection with God through the Lord Jesus Christ in order to bring forth fruit that is worthy of repentance. Fruit is the evidence of our union with Christ. Where there is no union, there's no fruit. And where there's no fruit, there's union. There's no union. So fruit requires union. Maybe some of you, like me, grew up in the late 50s and the early 60s, or your mother and your grandmother fell prey to that that incredible thing called plastic fruit. For some reason, there was a whole group of women in the 1960s who thought that if you put plastic fruit on the table, that that was cool. 
So you would go to the dime store or Woolworths or wherever it is that you shopped and you'd get this basket full of fruit and there's the yellow bananas and the ripe peaches and and the apples and the pears and the grapes. Those grapes looked really real. But you didn't have to be a theological genius to figure out that plastic fruit or wax fruit isn't real. Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and love is the source of our obedience, not fear or duty. Jesus said, if a man loves me, he'll keep my words in John 24, 23. Joy is the fragrant flower of holiness, and peace is the outcome of trust, and patience is the wife of long-suffering, and gentleness is the daughter of love, and goodness is the activity of grace, And faith is the faithfulness of courage. And meekness is the lesson of humility that we learn from Jesus. And temperance is the discipline of faith. And you can pretend some of those for a little while. But you can't live every day in love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness. Unless you have a right relationship with God and Christ. Paul speaks of the fruit of righteousness or uprightness filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus, he says in Philippians 1.11. Paul speaks of the fruit of holiness, separation to God in Romans 6.22, being made free from sin and becoming servants to God. As you have fruit unto holiness, he speaks of the fruit of our lips, thanksgiving. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. This is the fruit of our lips, Hebrews 8.15. It's the fruit of work, consistency. Walk worthy of the Lord, being fruitful in every good work, it says in Colossians 1.10. Paul spoke of his work in conversion and consecration in Romans 1.13. That I might have some fruit among you, the Romans, he says. The fruit of generosity, ministering to others, Philippians 4.17. I desire fruit that may abound to your account, Paul writes. Fruit to God. God's object in saving people. Bringing Fruit unto God in Romans chapter 7 verse 4. And so if you're thinking of turning over a new leaf. If you're thinking of going into a different direction. If you're thinking that maybe more or better thoughts or more or better speech or more generous Activity with your finances is what's going to change your heart. You're you're missing the whole point. Jesus isn't interested simply in changing your mind or even the direction that you're going. It's a real change of heart that comes because of repentance and submission and trust. We live in a world that's saturated with religion without Christ. We live in a world where there is religion without gospel and religion without repentance and religion without surrender and religion without trust. By the way, the word religion appears four times in the Greek New Testament. 
In James chapter 1, it appears twice in verses 26 and 27. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The word religion appears again in Acts chapter 17, verse 22, where Paul says, I perceive, speaking to the, to the, to the Athenians, to, to, the, to the philosophers there, he says, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. But the word Jesus, the word Christ, the word Lord, appears two thousand two hundred and sixty nine times in the Greek New Testament two thousand two hundred and sixty nine times Jesus Christ Lord how can you read the New Testament and come to the conclusion that God wants you to be religious or to trust religion or repent and, re- and go to religion. Or surrender to religion. Or trust religion. J.R. Miller writes, quote, True repentance amounts to nothing whatsoever if it produces only a few tears, a spasm of regret, a little fright, We must leave the sins we repent of and walk in the new and clean ways of holiness. And so look what it says against the warning of religious privilege. John the Baptist says to everyone, including the religious leaders, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And in the Judean wilderness, where the Jordan meets the Dead Sea, if you ever get to go there, you'll see a place that's completely surrounded by rocks. John doesn't give much hope to those who trust religious heritage or genealogy. And there were lots of Jews who embraced the notion that they were saved by the mere fact that they were Jews. They believed in an assurance that was related to Judaism, an eternal security that was related to being the seed of Abraham. We're the covenant people. We're the chosen people. But John's baptism wasn't for the self-righteous. It wasn't for the self-assured. John's baptism was offered to those people who realized that there was no security in genealogy or DNA or religion. If John wants people to confess their sin, if John wants people to break it off with sin, if John wants people to make a forever commitment to walk in the direction of God and by the Holy Spirit, then that's the message that he's giving. And by the way, do Christians fall into the same trap? Do Christians sometimes think that simply because they've trusted Christ, that they're free to live a life of rebellion and disobedience against God, to live in, in unrepentant sin? Did you think that simply because you trusted Christ, that personal holiness is irrelevant? And we know that 
the law exposes our guilt and we know that we need grace and we know and have at least if you have even the slightest appreciation of sin then you're aware of grace and you're aware of forgiveness but I want you to think about it because you've probably prayed a prayer. Haven't you ever prayed a prayer where you go, Lord, I want you to forgive my sins? Lord, I want you to forgive me. But John is going to introduce a Messiah who's going to come, a king who isn't just simply in the business of forgiving sin. He is going to destroy sin. The penalty for sin. The power of sin. And eventually even the presence of sin. But human beings are incurably religious. But what's the difference between being religious. And having a relationship with God and Christ. It's the difference I think. In the presence of Jesus living inside of your heart. And now we begin to understand what John will write about the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5. When he says, and this is the assurance or this is the testimony that we have. That that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. And he who has life, he who has the son has life. Not he who has religion or he who has a Bible or even he who has a prayer life or he who has a generous record of giving. He who has the son has life. And in verse 10, look what it says, the Baptist's warning against the future test. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. When John uses that expression. And now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. I think that there's two kinds of meaning that we might derive from this. It could mean that the axe has been laid at the root of the tree, but it hasn't been raised in order for it to come down in judgment. Let me give you an example that hopefully all of you can relate to, or maybe some of you can relate to. A lot of my early life was spent with my granny, who I loved and adored. And my granny kept a wooden spoon in the kitchen on the wall. And that wooden spoon was on that wall just in case. It was always there and she could always take it off the wall in case one particular grandchild decided that rebellion and disobedience was going to be his course of action and then granny would be forced to remove the wooden spoon from off of the wall. And it could very well be that that's the picture. It's placed at the the fruit or at the root of the tree. The expectation is clear, whatever else it means. That every tree would bear good fruit. The barren tree, the fruitless tree still has a valuable purpose. It can be used as firewood. But John informs his audience that the time is fast approaching when God would test every human life 
for good or bad fruit. And I'm going to suggest to you that what he's talking about isn't simply the presence or the absence of good things that you've done or bad things that you've done. It's the presence or the absence of Jesus in your life. That's the test. Because that's, you should ask yourself, what is the test? What is the test? And how do I pass the test? And when you turn to chapter 4 and you read chapter 5 and you go to chapter 6 and you go to chapter 7 and you go to chapter 8, the rest of Matthew's gospel is going to be devoted to the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus because it's the coming of Jesus, it's the presence of Jesus, it's the message of Jesus, it's the arrival of Jesus. That's the test. What will you do with him? What will you do with Jesus? Will you repent of your sin and surrender and trust him? Those found fruitless won't survive. Because I want you to think carefully about what John is saying. It's the presence of fruit or the absence of fruit that is the test. It is the presence of fruit or absence of fruit in what context? In the context of repentance and surrender and trust. For those of you who still don't understand the meaning of fruit, I want to remind you of a story in 1 Samuel. Do you remember? There was a woman named Hannah, and she was barren, and she desperately, she desperately wanted a child. And she wept, and she cried, and she cried out to God. And she said, I am barren, and I am fruitless. I want a child. I want a child. I want a child. And she begged the Lord, and she begged the Lord. And her husband said... Am I not better to you than 10 children? And then his other wife, who seemed to have no problem bearing children, would mock her and tease her. And it would make the emptiness even that much more profound. And then one day the Lord answered her prayer. And she gave birth to Samuel the prophet. You see, remember in that instance, fruit is something living, reproductive, if you will. In verse 11, it says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is using water as the instrument, the medium for baptism with a view to repentance for the remission of sin. But someone else is coming who's going to administer the Holy Spirit baptism. And that as chaff was burned near to the threshing floor, there would be a fire of judgment that would inevitably consume those who are found to be unreal unfaithful in the sifting and the testing process. Slaves were assigned the menial task of washing feet and bearing burdens. And so John concedes that the one who's coming after him is mightier. That is in his role and relationship. That his role is different from the person who's coming. 
His role is to point people to Jesus, the Messiah. And this is why putting on the sandal or binding the sandal or loosing the sandal or carrying the sandal became a proverb in the, in the Middle East about humility. So John explains the profound and significant difference between his ministry and the ministry of, of Messiah. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's ministry and calling prepare people to meet the king. It's a message of repentance. The king's ministry was to exercise a ministry even more radical, even more fundamental, even more refining, even more severe, even more drastic, even more dramatic, even more in measure. John's calling the people to make a choice about whether they're going to serve God and believe God and love God. And Messiah is going to do even more. Messiah is going to call people to himself and ask them to make the most fundamental, fundamental and radical decision concerning himself. And in verse 12 it says, His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The winnowing fan was a fork that was shaped like a shovel. And what they would do is they would use this fork to throw up the grain and the chaff and the wind, the wind would come and it would blow the chaff away and the more substantive grain would fall and it becomes a type and a picture, if you will, of the chaff being the unbeliever separated from the grain, which is the true believer. The wind will carry the unbeliever a short distance from the grain, the true believer where it will be raked into a pile and then burned. And John gives us the metaphor of unquenchable fire. But do you think it's a metaphor that just simply refers to people who don't measure up? I don't think so. Remember the whole context and what I said about fruit. Because the real presence or the absence of fruit in your life The real test of the real presence of real fruit is the presence or the absence of Jesus. And so what is John's timeless message? Repent. Surrender. Trust. There is no such thing as salvation apart from repentance or a salvation that refuses to forsake sin, a salvation that refuses to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ, a a salvation that refuses to trust. There was an old-time preacher, John G. Lake, who used to say, quit swearing, quit wrestling. It is not try, but trust. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said, trust Jesus Trust self and you're lost. Robert Falcon recalls the story of his witnessing among a group of 
destitute people in a certain city. And he was reading to them the story of the woman who wiped Jesus' feet with her tears. And while he was reading the story, he heard a loud sob. And he saw this young, thin girl whose face was completely disfigured by smallpox. And after a few words of encouragement to her, she said, Will he ever come again? The one who forgave this woman? I've heard that he's going to come again. Will it be soon? Falconer answered her question. And sobbing again uncontrollably, she said, Sir, can't he wait just a little while? Because my hair ain't long enough yet to wipe his feet. There is no such thing as salvation apart from repentance, apart from surrender, apart from trust. John is answering the issue that each and every one of you know in your heart to be true. And that is that you don't want to experience just simply the forgiveness of sin, but the annihilation of sin where it goes away forever and ever. The power of sin, the penalty of sin, the presence of sin. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the message of hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a powerful message that if we can see the greatness of our forgiveness by our God that we can experience his love and in turn be loving and forgiving. Lord, thank you that you're willing to forgive us in Christ. That you're willing to give us assurance and the gift of eternal life. And Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to turn from our sin, not just sorrow, over the things that we've done or even the person that we've become but a fundamental willingness to allow Jesus to change us at the most fundamental level that we don't just simply turn from our sin but that we turn to Jesus and we surrender to him in the full assurance knowing that he will love us and take us and accept our surrender that we can trust the message that if we turn from our sin and we trust Jesus as our savior that he will in fact forgive us that that's the message of hope in Jesus name amen let's stand